Genesis 25, and the title of our lesson this morning is God Chooses. God Chooses. Now, to be honest with you, um, Genesis 25 is not something you probably would normally hear people uh, preach and teach about. And it's not that there's not a lot in it. We've got a marriage in it. We've got a, a couple of deaths. We've got the birth of a couple of children. There's a lot of action and a lot of things happening. But a lot of preachers and teachers would skip it because when you first read it, it doesn't seem that there's anything really relevant to us. And, and to be quite honest with you, that's really what, teach, what preachers and teachers are doing, is when they sit to preach and teach, we're trying to find something that's relevant to you, right? If it's not relevant to you, you're just going to forget about it and move on. So at first glance, it doesn't seem like there would be anything relevant here. So what do we do as a teacher when you come to a chapter like this? Well, And I've, I've taught you this before and, and hope you remember. The first thing you do is you always ask a question when reading something. Why did the writer record this? This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's a reason things are in there. And you have to ask that question. In this case, it's Moses. Why did Moses uh, write it? And, and if you can answer that question, then probably most times you can find something in it that, that's relevant to, to us. The second thing you should always do with a passage is, is ask yourself, does any other passage in the Bible reference back to this? Okay? In other words, does, does, does another passage in the Bible actually interpret this? For example, you remember in uh, Genesis 16, we had the story of uh, Hagar and, and Sarah. Everybody remember that? And uh, when you first read it, you think, well, it's just a story of two rival women, and they're, they're fighting over their kids and all that kind of stuff. But when you get to Galatians 4, Paul actually refers back to that story and says, no, there's more to it than that. That's actually two covenants. One is a covenant of the flesh and of works. The other represents a covenant of the Spirit and of grace. Everybody remember that. So, so what's happening there is the Bible is interpreting the Bible. Now, that's important, right? That's, that's way more important than me interpreting it, is that the Bible is, in, is, is interpreting that. So again, that, if that happens, that is hugely important because the Bible is trying to teach us something. Now, in the case of Genesis 25 it turns out that there is another chapter in the New Testament that references back to it. And that chapter is probably one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible, and that is Romans 9. And so we'll come back to that a little bit later. But it's going to turn out later that Romans 9 and what it says about this chapter makes our chapter today very, very important. In fact, it's so important, it's going to take us two weeks uh, to get through it. And it is a chapter that's going to teach us something about God. Not so much something about ourselves, but it's going to be, teach us something about God. And it's going to turn out to be very relevant to you and I. And what this chapter is going to teach us is how God makes choices. See, the fact is we think a lot about us choosing, but God makes choices every day. Well, how does He choose? What criteria are, are behind His choices? This, this chapter today is going to teach us something uh, about that. All right, let's begin in, but we got, we got a little bit to get through before we get to that. <clears throat> we'll begin in verse 1 uh, with, of all things, something unexpectedly, and that is Abraham uh, getting another wife. Verse 1 through 6. It says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Shuram, Latushim, and Lumen. 
The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephra, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham, though, gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Now, so we, we open this chapter. Sarah has died a, a couple chapters ago. She's been dead probably about three years now. And Abraham, it says, takes another wife. Now, there is some debate among scholars as to when he did this, okay? Um, it seems in just reading Scripture that it would have naturally occurred after Sarah died. But if he did that, Abraham would have been probably 140 years old or more. At a minimum, he was 140 years old. And so some scholars would say, now, wait a minute. You're at a 140-year-old man, and you're going to be fathering all these, all these children, right? That, that seems a little odd uh, that God maybe would have had to miraculously, um, you know, touch his body so that he would have been able to do that. So some people say, well, because of that, he really needed to be a younger man. Also, you'll notice in that scripture that, he's, he, that she is called not only his wife, she's called a concubine. Okay? And in fact, in 1 Chronicles one thirty-two, she's also called a concubine. That means she doesn't have the same status as a, as a wife. So some believe that Abraham may have done that while Sarah was still alive. Now, the problem with that view to me is that it just doesn't keep, seem consistent with Abraham. If you've, if you've been with us through this study, Abraham loved that woman, and she loved him. And, and he, did, he never seemed... I mean, I just don't think that's consistent with his uh, character. In the end, it doesn't really matter, but I, I just think it, we just read the Bible the way the Bible is, it says it happened. He did this after, uh, after the death of Sarah. Now, here's the question. All we get in that list, he remarried, he has a bunch of kids, right? A bunch of boys. And you may ask, well, why would you write that? What's the point of it? What's relevant about that to me and you? Well, the point of it is that God keeps his promises. That's the point. Genesis 17, 4, God promises uh, Abraham, he says this, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of what? A multitude of nations. Not one nation. See, we think of, of Abraham as being the father of Israel, the nation of Israel through Isaac, which he is. But he's the father of a ton of nations. All the Arabs, all, I mean, you name it, they all trace back to him. And that's what God said. I'm going to make you the father of a multitude of nations. Well, this is just showing, yeah, he kept his promise. All of these boys grew up and, and started nations. Now, we don't recognize a lot of their names, but Israel would have. Israel would have recognized them. And so it was a demonstration to Israel. Remember, Moses is writing this. They, they've come out of Egypt, right? They've spent 40 years in the wilderness. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. And Moses is writing Genesis. And he, he, they're reading it, so they, I mean, they look all the way back. God is saying, go into that land. I'm promising you to give you that land. Moses wants to say, look, he's kept his promises all these years. He's going to keep this one as well, right? Now, but I want you to note that it specifically says he gave all that he had to Isaac. And he sent those other sons away, right? They're not, the, the blessing, the promises of God are coming through Isaac. Even though he has all these other sons, he gives them things, I'm sure... They got different things, but he sent them all away to live away from Isaac. Isaac is promised the, the land of Canaan or the promised land. He is God's choice. He's the son that's going to fulfill all the promises of God. And so, again, the people that are, that are reading this for the first time need to be reminded of that because they are Isaac's descendants. 
Remember that. All of this is being written for the people of Israel, fixing to go in. They need to remind it. God kept His promise to Abraham. God kept His promises to Isaac. And God will keep His promises to you. Now, the next part of the chapter, we come to the death of Abraham, verses 7 through 11. These are the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last, and he died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. So Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Do you remember a few... Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about practical Christianity, and we talked about Abraham. And we said when he bought, when he purchased that cave, he wasn't just deciding where to bury Sarah; he was deciding where he would be buried. And that's exactly what happened. They buried him in that same cave. Verse eleven: After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Laharoi. Whenever a great man dies, and we see this today, a great a man starts a company, he starts a movement or whatever, and that man dies, there's always a lot of worry. Well, who's going to pick up? Who's going to carry on? Let me tell you, when it comes to God's program, you don't have to worry about that, okay? Um, listen, it, it, this, I, I love this church. If this is God's church, when Pastor Henry moves on, you won't have to worry about this church. God will move that next person right on in to pick right up where he left off. If this is not God's church... And, 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 and it falls apart. It was never God's church to start with. Are you with me? God, God, so what he's saying here is God blessed Isaac. In other words, the torch has been his past. God's purpose is greater than any man, even Abraham. Now, Abraham's a great man. He's known as the father of our faith. But it was because God chose him. God picked him. And God blessed him. And God gave him great promises. And, and, and so God is always going to carry out what His plan is and what His purposes are. Nothing can stop that. Nothing can thwart that. So Abraham is now dead, but He wants us to see the torch has been uh, passed. It is through Isaac that the promises are going to, uh, are going to come. Now, we've got another death in the chapter. So as you can kind of see it's jumping around. It's, it's hitting on a bunch of stuff. Now it comes to the death of Ishmael, verses 12 through 18. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Naboth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nephish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years he breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria, and he settled over against all his kinsmen. Once again, you may say, well, why is this recorded? Once again, the point, God keeps his promises. Do you remember back in Genesis 17 where uh, Ishmael is born and, and God says, no, that's not the son I promised you. You, you made that son happen. I didn't. I've got another, I'm going to give a son to Sarah. And, and Abraham asked God, please bless Ishmael. Because he loved Ishmael. He said, please bless him. This is God's promise. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will indeed bless him. I'll make him fruitful and I'll give him a multitude of descendants. He will become the father of 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. And that is exactly what God, 
what God did. By the way, if you go back, it says that they moved over where the Assyrians are. If you go back and look at the Assyrian Empire, it's pretty much all of the Middle East with the exception of Israel. So the idea that the Arabs of today, uh, anywhere, especially the, uh, around Iraq and, and Iran and Turkey and, and down into Egypt, that whole area of the Middle East, the idea that they are the, the descendants of Ishmael is borne out uh, by Scripture. Um, that they are all these great nations that have grown up over the, over the millennia are descendants uh, of Ishmael. And of course, notice that last thing, he was against his kinsmen. Isn't that crazy? I mean, thousands of four thousand years ago, roughly, Ishmael's against against Isaac, and again, and it's still there today. They hate one another. I mean, it's just it's borne out from family to family, from century to century, and it just keeps on and keeps on and keeps on. Now, I want you to notice that when Ishmael died, he's not buried in the same cave as Abraham and Sarah. That cave was purchased in the Promised Land. It is for the people of the promise. So Ishmael would not be, it was not to be, he's not to be buried there, and he was, uh, he was not. Now, finally, after the remarriage of Abraham, the, the death of Abraham, the death of Ishmael, we come to Esau and Jacob. And this kind of turns a, a page in Genesis. Uh, we've been with Abraham since chapter 12, haven't we? And here in chapter 25, 13 chapters, it's slowed down and just followed the life of Abraham. But now it's going to flip over uh, to the birth. Abraham has died, and it's going to move to the birth of Esau and Jacob. Verses 19 to 21. It says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. All right, let's just stop here for just one second. Does anybody see this problem with God's plan, right? In fact, let's put ourselves in God's shoes for just a minute. If you were God, and you were going to pick a man, and you were going to make this man the father of many nations... Wouldn't you think that one of the requirements for this man and his wife, that they be fertile? Wouldn't that be kind of high on your list, right? To, to make sure, okay, if I'm make you a father of many nations, you got to have some children. So, but they're not, right? He picks Abraham. He actually picks a couple that can't have children. And then, of course, if we were God, we'd make sure that their children were fertile. And Everybody with me? But that's not how it turned out at all. God chooses a couple who can't have children. And then of all things, Isaac marries Rebekah. And by the way, we know that's God's will. We went through that over the last couple weeks. And she's barren for 20 years. Can't have children for 20 years. We'll find that out in just a few minutes. That she, he's, six, he's 40 when he marries her. He's 60 when they have these twins. So they're barren for, for 20 years. Now, notice Ishmael, he didn't have any problems, did he? Ishmael, the son of the flesh, the son of works that Abraham kind of cooked up on his own, he, he ends up producing 12 sons. Isaac can only produce two in his entire lifetime. But let me tell you something. The, the title of our lesson today is God Chooses. And here's something we need to learn about God. God always seems to choose counter to what you would do. God always seems to choose counter to man's wisdom. 
Now, this is borne out in Scripture. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. This is his description of how God chooses. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And this last verse, 29, tells us why God does it. What's behind his thinking? Why does he do these kind of things? Why does he, why does he choose a couple that can't have kids? Why do they have a son that can't have kids? Why does he do it that way? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's why he does it. When God chooses, his glory is paramount. Will he get the glory? And you've got to remember that because this is going to be really important the rest of this lesson and even into, into next week. God chooses this way for particular reasons. You see, if God chose those that are strong in themselves, they could say, well, look what I did, right? If God chose those who first chose him, then we could stand up and say, well, look how smart I am. All the, all the rest of you dummies aren't choosing God, but I chose him because I'm, I'm smart. I, I'm, I'm wiser than, than you are. We could brag about that. So God chooses those in the world that the world would never choose. The world would push Abraham aside and say, oh, they, they're, they're infertile. They can't have kids. We don't want them. God says, no, I'll take them. God, the world would push Isaac and Rebekah aside because they can't have children. They've been barren for 20 years. The world would say, well, they're, they're no good. We don't need them. God says, no, I'll take them. See, he does it in a way that he gets the glory. That's why it was so important that he, he couldn't go through Ishmael because that was, Abraham's, that was Abraham's works doing that. It had to come through uh, Sarah. Now, I want to stop here for just a minute. Whether we realize it or not, God has been choosing one person over another all throughout the book of Genesis, or especially since we got to chapter 12. He chose Abraham over Lot, chose Abraham over, over Abraham's dad. He picked Abraham out of that family and chose him. He chose Sarah over Hagar, right? Chose Sarah over Keturah to, bury the son, to bear the, the, the child of promise, which would, be, which would be Isaac. He chooses Isaac over Ishmael. God's always choosing, making choices, okay? And now, here it is, it's going to turn out that this Rebecca is pregnant, and she's going to be with, pregnant with twins. And one of those boys has to be the one to carry on the promise. And God is going to choose one of them over the other. And the way he makes that choice turns out to be very important. He does it before they are even born. He makes that choice before one of them does any right or does any wrong. Anything good or anything bad, he makes the choice while they're still in the, in the womb. Let's read it, verses 22 to 23. So the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, at this point in Genesis, I want you to understand, I know this is hard for us because we're looking back, 
But these are people, think about if you're reading this for the first time. You don't have the New Testament. You don't have anything. You just got this book. And all of a sudden, this is something new, okay? See, with his other choices, he chooses Abraham. We could say, well, you know, he probably looked at Abraham living down there and saw, well, Abraham's a good guy, right? Abraham's got some good qualities. I'm going to pick him. I've noticed how he's he's been doing and maybe he chooses Sarah because man, Sarah's a man. She's a she's a righteous woman. She's she's a good woman. Maybe maybe he, everybody with me. You you could kind of come up with reasons why he chose them because they're good people. But you see here, this is something blatantly new. God chooses one of these boys, and he does it before they're even born. He does it before they do anything good or bad, anything right or wrong. He just chooses them. So this, if you're reading this for the very first time, if you're one of the Israelites, you're thinking, man, I never heard, I never heard this before. Let's read on, verses 24 to 27. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau, which means hairy. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, which means supplanter. In other words, he's trying to pull him back in and take his place as the firstborn. It meant to supplant somebody, so they called him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now that tells us right there she's been barren for 20 years. Okay, that's how we know that. Verse 27. So when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebecca loved Jacob. All right, we got all kind of problems breaking out in this family. Okay, let's just be honest. Now, over the lifetime of these boys, they're going to have a very difficult relationship with one another. Okay, very difficult. And there's really three things that play into this. Number one, they are, they are as different as two boys can absolutely be that are born to the same mom and daddy, born at the same time. They are completely different. Esau is a man's man. He's masculine. He's, he's aggressive. He's a, he's a hunter. He likes to be outside in the field and doing things. He relies on his brawn. Okay? He relies on his physicality. He's, he's a physical guy, right? Man's man, we would call that. Jacob, on the other hand, is a mama's boy. I mean, just, let's just say it the way he is. He don't really want to go out there hunting and fishing. and He just, let's stay home and read a book. And, oh, I can learn to cook while I'm here, right? Um, Seriously, that's really what he was. And so he, he's a smart guy. He's very uh, introspective, very thoughtful. Um, and, and, and so, but he relies on his, on his brain more than his, his brawn. So completely two different boys. So that's number one. The second factor, which is really going to cause them to have a hard relationship, is their parents participate in this, okay? They have got a divided lawyer. Isaac loves Esau. I mean, as a, as a dad, you know, you look at him, boy, that's my boy right there, you know. And he's out there hunting, and, and he's bringing home all the game. He's feeding the family. He's supplying the family, supporting the family. I mean, he's everything, you know, a dad would look at and say, boy, that's what I want my, my boy to be, especially back in those di- times. So his, his dad loves him because of that. And he, you know, his dad looks at Jacob and it's like, well, where did that kid come from, right? I mean, he's nothing like me. Rebecca, on the other hand, she loves Jacob, and you can understand this, right? First of all, she never sees Esau. He's gone constantly. He's always out in the field, always out hunting and fishing. He's never at home. Jacob's right there. They talk. They, they share. You know, Jacob's much more refined. He's, again, he's that mama's boy. 
And he's gonna, he spends a ton more time with her than, than Esau ever would, because it makes perfect sense. But they, the boys know this, right? You, they, it's not something they kind of hide inside, that one loves one and lo- one loves the other. Everybody knows that there's a divided loyalty between these two. Um, and, and this is going to cause, anytime you have parents who identify too much uh, with one of their children, you got problems. you got, you got real problems. It's going to cause divisions in the home, and it's going to cause divisions in the marriage. Right? If one of the spouse thinks, well, you're treating the other one, you, everybody with me, you, you, this, this doesn't take rocket science to figure out this is a bad deal that's going on in this family. The third and final factor that's going to cause them problems for years to come is a situation that's about to occur. And that is that Jacob is going to, to get the birthright or take the birthright or obtain the birthright from Esau. Let me, let me tell you what a birthright is. When, when children were born in that day, the birthright had to do with your position in the family. Are you the oldest son? Are you the middle son? Are you the youngest son? And the oldest son, his birthright was he would become the leader of the family. He's basically, he's next in line from the father. So when the father becomes incapacitated or the father dies, that son steps up and becomes the leader of the, of the family. It also has to do with your inheritance. The older son would get, you know, not that the other kids wouldn't get anything, but the older son would get the land and the house and, and the homestead. And basically, the, that was his birthright. And it had to do with one thing and one thing only, and that's your order of birth. If you just, you know, two twins in the womb and one of them just happened to come out ahead of the other because it was born on, whatever, right? It's just, it's just, you know, you can call it coincidence or chance or whatever you want to call it. It just, it just happens. Now, this is what happens with the birthright. Verses 29 to 30, let's read it. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Evidently, best I can figure out this, uh, the name Red is Edom in the Hebrew. And evidently, Esau is called by two names. He's Esau, which means hairy, but he's also called Edom, which is Red, like a nickname, right? A lot of people have nicknames that we go by. By the way, Esau would become the father of a nation called the Edomites. Okay, and they don't call them the Esau sites, they call them the Edomites, right? Maybe they called him that just because it rolled off the tongue a little better than the Esau sites. Anyway, but that, so he kind of had two names, uh, one or the other. So here they are doing what they do. It's just a normal day, right? Once again, Esau spends all day out in the field. He's not home. He's just running and going and just loves being out there. Jacob is, is, is experimenting with some new recipes in the tent, right? I mean, let's just be honest. He's cooking a new, a new stew. So Esau comes in the door and he's starving. Okay, now by the way, he's not dying. He's going to say in a minute, oh, I'm dying. He's not dying. He's just been out hunting. All. Yeah, he's hungry, but he's not, he's not dying. So he asked Jacob for some of the stew. Now, by the way, we've talked about this. In that culture, if a stranger came in and asked you for water, or if a stranger came in and asked you for some stew, what do you do? You just give it to him. You, uh, absolutely, certainly. I mean, that's, that, that was what you did in that day. He doesn't even give him the courtesy of what he would give a, a stranger. He sees it immediately because he relies on his brain. He sees it immediately as an opportunity to take advantage of Esau. Verse 31. So Jacob says, all right, I'll give you some of that Sue. Sell me your birthright right now. Sell it to me. Okay? Just takes advantage. Now, what Esau should have done 
is he should have just probably walked over here and popped him in the head one time and took the stew, right? I mean, he could have done that. I mean, he could have just took it and went on about it, but he doesn't do that. Now, first of all, this reveals to us a lot about Jacob, right? Again, he doesn't even give him the courtesy he would give to a stranger. He is greedy. He's deceptive. Uh, he, he's willing to take any situation and use it to his advantage. So without even any shame at all, he asked Esau for the most valuable thing that Esau has. I mean, that, how, I mean, how do you have the gall to do that? The most valuable thing somebody has says, you say, give it to me for a bowl of stew. I mean, that, that's shameless right there, right? And Esau shouldn't even have, like I said, he should have just went over and took the stew, right? I mean, he was man enough to do that. Look at verse 32. Esau says, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Now listen, he's not about to die. Okay, that's not the point here at all. He's not about to die. What you should see here is how casually Esau takes the whole idea. Like it's some kind of joke or something. I'm about to die, man. What is a birthright to me? Now, this teaches us something about, about Esau. We'll talk about this in just a minute. Now, he almost makes a joke of it, right? But, Esau, but Jacob, he's not going to let it go this casually. So he just steps it up one more. I mean, I don't know how he, he had the nerve to do this, but verse 33, Jacob said, Swear to me right now. And it says, So he, Esau, swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob for a, for a bowl of stew. Now, Moses will conclude this chapter. This is Moses writing. In verse 34, Moses said this, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay? That's, that's Moses' statement about Esau's character. Yeah, Jacob, listen, Jacob ain't no prize to take home. But Esau despised his birthright. Now, what you got to understand about this, Esau is not just selling his birthright in this little family of four. That's not what this is about. See, he had a spiritual birthright that had come from Abraham that had been passed to his father Isaac, and by order of birth, he should have expected it to come to him. He should have been the inheritor of the promise. He could care less. That he could care less. So this, has, this is not about their little family of four. This is about a spirit. Everybody with me? See, that's his sin. That's his real sin. It's not, it's not oh, just, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, you get the house instead of me. What do I care? I spend all my days out in the field anyway. That's not about, this is about the spiritual aspects. Many years later, the writer of Hebrews is going to look back to this passage, and he's going to make a statement. And when he speaks of Esau, he speaks of Esau as a man who has no appreciations for spiritual things or eternal things. Let me, let me read this to you. This is Hebrews twelve fifteen to 17. See to it, he's writing to the church now, to you and I. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. This is a pretty cool little scripture right here. What it's saying is, it starts out, see that you don't despise the grace of God. In other words, you've got a spiritual birthright. You've got the free gift of salvation being offered to you, and you sell it to hold on to bitterness. You sell it so that you can be sexually immoral. You sell it. See, unholy means opposite of God things. You sell it for earthly things. The, the, the gift of salvation, the grace of God is sitting right there. It's your birthright. Take it. 
but you sell it so that you can have some hold on to bitterness. Everybody see that? You're just like Esau. When you want, I want to hold on to all this sinful stuff and be sexually immoral and unholy and bitter, he's saying you're selling your birthright to salvation just like Esau sold his birthright for a, for a bowl of stew. You're no different. In fact, it goes on to say this, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You see, the time came where he changed his mind. He changed his mind. He said, oh, Father, I, I want my birthright. It's too late. He couldn't get it even though he sought it with tears. He couldn't, he, he couldn't turn it around at that point. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, remember Esau. Remember Esau. See, again, Esau, his problem is he's unholy. All that matters to him is the here and now. All that matters to him is right now. What's going on right now on this earth. That's all. He could care less about eternity. He could care less about spiritual things. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us to be vigilant, not only that we don't do that, but we don't allow that in our body, in the body of Christ either, because it will corrupt the body. Now, listen, Jacob is no, he's no prize. I mentioned that earlier. He's no model of ethics or integrity. But here's the thing about Jacob. He's not a good guy. But let me tell you what he does value. He, invalu- he values the birthright. He's not a good guy. He's greedy. He's deceiving. He's, he's, he's got a lot of issues, but he values the birthright. He looked at that birthright, and he knew how valuable. Now, he tries to get it the wrong way, doesn't he? He tries to get it by physical means, by deception, by works. Everybody with me? By the way, he's walking in his grandfather's footsteps right now. You see, Abraham tried to gain the promise by going into Hagar and, and having a child called Ishmael. I'm going to get the promise that way. God said, no, no, that's not going to happen. Isaac, I mean, Jacob wants the birthright. He tries to get it through deception, through taking advantage of a situation. Now, it's a smart deal, but that's not the way God is going to work, and God is going to deal with Jacob. But the thing you've got to understand about Jacob and Esau, the difference between those two boys, one, had, one valued the spiritual, valued the eternal, the other one didn't. Neither one of them is good guys. Neither one of them's like him. In fact, if I could choose one to hang out with, I'd hang with Esau. I don't think I really want to hang with Jacob. But that doesn't really matter, right? He valued the birthright, and that's what set him apart. So again, he, he does exactly what his uncle Abraham does, but that's not the way that God is going to work. Now, that's the end of the chapter right there. But that's not the end of the story. 2,000 years later, after this is written, a man named Paul will sit down and he'll write a letter to the Romans. Okay? And in this letter to the church at Rome, uh, he will expound on Genesis 25. He will talk about Genesis 25, and he'll talk about the story of Jacob and Esau in order to make a point. In other words, the New Testament interprets the Old. Everybody with me? Okay? So this ain't me. This is Paul saying this is what that means. Now... I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll talk about it. Romans 9, 9 through 13. This is Paul talking about that story. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only that, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and though they had not yet done anything good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election, and that word election means choosing. To elect someone is to choose them. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I... This is God speaking. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay? Now that should bring us up short. God is saying, before they were born, I chose Jacob. And he said, then he goes on to say at the end, he, he's quoting Malachi, by the way, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, as a teacher, I would not be doing right if I didn't include Romans 9 in our study of Genesis 25, right? Because Romans 9 is saying something about Genesis 25. What it's saying, we'll, t- we'll, we'll learn next week. But I can't just skip it. So next week, I'm going to cover Romans 9, which, by the way, as I said earlier, is probably one of the most, if not the most, controversial uh, books in the Bible. But before I go a few minutes, I need to give you a warning, and I'm going to give you some homework. Here's my warning. You've often heard me say that I believe, and and I've I've been this, I I was this person. For much of my life, I chose which scriptures I wanted to be part of my belief system, and I just kind of ignored the ones I didn't. Everybody with me? Kind of like a Ponderosa or a, or a, a, a um, I can't remember these other buffet places, Golden Corral, right? You go in and you walk down the buffet, yeah, I like that, I like that, I like that, and nope, not that one. I'll just, I'll just pretend that ain't there. A lot of Christians are, are like that. And by the way, sometimes we even do this with good intentions. We leave out the more controversial chapters or the more controversial passages in the Bible or doctrines to make Christianity more palatable to those that are going to come off the street. But there is a very sad irony when we do that, and I want you to listen to me. And the irony is this, if you alter or you obscure the portrait of God in order to bring in converts to God, you're not converting them to the God, you're converting them to an illusion of God. They don't have a real picture of God. You're, you're saying, oh, this is a fuzzy picture of God. Come believe in Him. No, I, I, you know, we're not giving them the whole picture, and there's a real irony in this. There are churches today, and even though I say this, I know, I know you can picture some of these on TV, and I won't call any, any names like Joel Osteen or anything like that, but they, don't, they literally don't believe, they don't believe that believers need a clear biblical portrait of God. They believe they can grow a church and they can grow people without a clear biblical portrait of God. Okay? So what they do is they just give you a few fuzzy thoughts about God. God loves you. God is good. Everybody with me? Just the good stuff. They stay away from the scary stuff. They stay away from the stuff that you, you know, that's, that's kind of hard to understand. They stay away from that. But here's the problem. Ignorance about God leaves a vacuum. Okay? And vacuum never stays unfilled. If there's something in your theology about God that you don't understand, and it's a vacuum and, and you're not taught about it, guess what will come in? False ideas. False doctrine. I had a man recently stand in front of me and, and say he disagreed with me about something. And I said, what is that? And he said, I had said something about some people sinning. And uh, he said, they, can't, they, they, they couldn't sin. I said, why not? He said, because they don't believe in God. And if you don't believe in God, you can't sin. 
Now, let me tell you, that man is a college graduate. That man uh, um, has been in church his whole life. That man was a leader in this county at one time. And he believes that. And you ask me why. I'll tell you why. Because he grew up in a church that left a vacuum. And a vacuum never stays a vacuum. It gets filled with false ideas. In other words, you, you're going to have a picture of God, right or wrong. So what my job is, and what Henry's job is, is to give you the right picture of God. So junk like that don't come in. Are you with me? That's our job. See, we cannot let that happen in this church. You cannot leave a vacuum about God. Because if you do, false ideas will come in. I want to know who God is. Good, bad, right, wrong... Not right or wrong. Good, bad. I want to know who God is. I want to listen. There's going to, when you look at God, there's going to be some jagged peaks that's going to scare you to death if you look at Him right. There's going to be some depths that you look at. Some you just you think I, I can never understand that, and you're right. But I want to try, and I want us to try because I want to have as clear a picture of who God really is as I possibly can. Now I'm going to I'm telling you all this because next week we're going to go to Romans nine. And the stuff that we're going to talk about is not trivial. It is serious and it is weighty. In fact, I was thinking this morning, it is, it is light years removed from the junk you hear on Christian radio. And let me tell you why I say that. I'll turn on Christian radio and they'll hear a song and they'll come to a break. And instead of talking about God and grace and salvation, they're talking about what TV show they watched last night. Give me a break. Are you a Christian show or not? I don't want to hear what I can hear on Gulf 104. I don't want to hear what I can hear on 94.9. I want to hear about God. And you're talking about American Idol. You're talking about, you know, your baby spit up on you last night. I don't care. I'm sorry. Give, give me something I can, give me something I can use. Give me something I can, are, are you with me? See, next week we're going to talk about some serious stuff. It's not in the same universe as Hollywood. It's not in the same universe as college sports. By the way, what we're going to talk about next week, never will you hear it on TV. Never. Never. It's never covered in manuals on church growth. You'll never open a manual on church growth. You'll never, you'll never see this anywhere. Ain't in there. And what am I talking about? I am talking about the staggering and shocking sovereignty of God. A God that can say, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That's what I'm talking about. And we're going to talk about that next week. you got homework. I never do this. I need you to read two chapters this week. First, I need you to read Romans 8. Because you cannot understand Romans 9 unless you read Romans 8. Romans 9 follows right behind... By the way, Romans 8, probably the greatest chapter in the Bible as far as I'm concerned. I've often said this. If you said I could have on a desert island, I could have one book, I'd take the Bible. If you said I could have one book of the Bible, I'd take Romans. If you said I could have one chapter out of the book of Romans, I'd take Romans 8. There's nothing like it else in the Bible. But immediately after you read Romans 8, it turns to Romans 9. And you have to have them both together. I want you to read Romans 8 and and Romans 9. Next week, we'll continue uh, with our lesson, God Chooses. Again, the reason we're doing this, can't just move on because Paul looks back to Genesis 25 and interprets it for us and tells us what's going on. So next week we'll cover that. God chooses uh, part two. Let's pray. Father.